Hello and welcome. This is Pastor Mark, and I am here to lead you into this course on how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Now, I just want to say straight up that this is, um, I'm using the term course loosely. So I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to take a, there's a college course that I used to teach on Bible study methods, and this is a distilled sort of church-focused version. All right. And the idea is I, I assume that most of you that are following along with this are not going to be seeking out a theological degree. You're not tr- trying to set out a, a, a career in pastoral ministry, um, but you are reading your Bible or you would like to. So I assume we've got a couple kinds of people um, that, are, that are tracking here. So one is the person that's been reading their Bible faithfully their entire life and is just thinking, you know what, there's more that I can get out of this. And the other kind of person is one that is, um, you know, I've never really read my Bible that much. Maybe I've been intimidated. Maybe I felt too busy. But I, I understand that it's important and I want to dive in. And so for both types of folks listening to this, I'm going to go through systematically um, some, some issues of like, here's an approach to reading the Bible and trying to get more and more out of it as we go. And I'll say straight off the top, I'm, I'm stealing the title of this, this course from a book by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. The, book, the book's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Great title, great book. Um, we won't be walking through the book, um, but the title is just so good, and, and they really are trying to get people digging in. There's more and more and more in Scripture um, than, than any of us realize. you know. And I think, I think most of us recognize there's so much more there than we're getting out of it, and so we want to spend our lives kind of just digging deeper, deeper, deeper. How do I fi- realize, finally, um, get better all the time at just digging into what does God's Word actually say? What does it mean? What are the implications for my life? Uh, you've probably heard a pastor give a great sermon, and you think, man, there's that person's getting a lot more scripture, a lot more out of scripture than I am when I read. Um, and this will help you kind of dig a little deeper, right? Or on the other side, uh, we've all had that experience if you see a, a preacher get more out of a passage than we think is probably really there, and then we're skeptical and we say, hmm, I feel like I'd like to hone my skills so that I can have my BS meter a little more attuned. And so along that front, you know, I want to kind of make a, a case for this course. What, what does it look like? Why should we take our time to do this? Now, there's silly reasons and there's big reasons, okay? So a lot of the uses that we see of Scripture um, in our sort of Christian culture um, end up misusing it, okay? So here's a couple of silly examples. But, um, you know, I saw years ago Christian t-shirt and... Um, and, you know, Christians love making t-shirts and, uh, and I guess Christians love wearing them. Maybe it's a little less popular now than it was when I first uh, started seeing this. But nonetheless, there's this one that was kind of like a, you know, hard rock cafe type design. It was a couple of uh, electric guitars, like necks crossed on these guitars. And, um, and then it says across the front, quote from Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, Right. Now, this is silly. Okay, obviously, uh, the, the passage is uh, Jesus saying, upon this rock, I'll build my church, right? You're, you're Peter, and upon this rock, Peter means rock. So, Jesus is talking about a thing in a context for a reason, right? And then, you know, uh, a Christian marketing person is like, hey, wouldn't that be funny? Upon this rock, and, and let's make a shirt about rock. So, I think that's pretty harmless, um, though certainly, you know, definitely not what Jesus meant or what Matthew meant as he wrote it. Um, you can go a little further. I, I had a um, great, like got one of those years ago, back when uh, Christian bookstores were like still around. Maybe they still kind of are, but I don't think so too much. And we'd get mailers and one of them came in the mail and there was like a multi-tool, like a Leatherman tool, you know, with the screwdriver and the scissors and the 
a few kind of knives and that kind of a thing all in there. And uh, it was it was um, embossed on the outside, engraved on the outside, um, this great verse, you have blessed the work of his hands from Job 1.10. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, that obviously great verse for a multi-tool, right? It was, it was kind of, I think it was, was it Christmas or maybe Father's Day or something? I can't remember, but perfect get dad gift, right? You have blessed the work of his hands. Here's a tool for you, dad. It has these words on it. But I was thinking, I'm like, Job 1.10, like what's going on in Job that he would say that? And I was a little bit suspicious. So I looked it up. And of course, in Job 1, what's happening? It's God talking to Satan and vice versa. And Satan comes before the Lord and he's like, the Lord says, look at my servant Job. He's so righteous. And, and uh, Job's like, or Satan is like, well, of course, Job is, loves you and does great because you've blessed the work of his hands, but take all that away. And he, you know, he's going to curse you or whatever. And that's how the book of Job gets set up. Right. But here's, here's, you know, this is why this kind of stuff matters. So here's a nice Christian marketing person, uh, no harm, no foul, I suppose, but just types in the Google um, search, right? Like Bible verses about work, right? And here you go. You've blessed the work of his hands. Oh, that's perfect, right? Doesn't bother to read the context, doesn't bother to see it. And so now I assume across the country, you have these different dads that are sitting here working with their nice Leatherman tool embossed with the words of Satan on it, right? Now, again, it's not destroying anybody or anything, but it just shows how careless we can be. Okay. Now one more example. That's also a little silly, but it gets into something important too. Um, years ago, Vander Holyfield and Mike Tyson had their great fight together and uh, Vander Holyfield comes out for his big fight. I, I believe it was the one where Mike Tyson bit his ear off, but it's like the, the heavyweight championship and um, Vander Holyfield comes out and on his shorts and on his robe are embossed Philippians 4.13. Um, Steph Curry, actually, same thing. He, he'll write like Philippians 4.13 on his shoes. And the idea that the verse says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Now, of course, that verse is beautiful, amazing, powerful, and it is right for athletes to gain inspiration from Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But um, when you look at that verse in context, like, it, does it actually work to say, okay, because I am a Christian and believe in Jesus... I can beat the snot out of Mike Tyson because Christ gives me strength. Or for Steph Curry, I can make every three-pointer from half court because of Christ who strengthens me. Seems to be that those things are working out for both of those people, or were at the time that they were athletes um, in Holyfield's case. But um, the reality is, is in this context, what's actually happening is you have um, Paul is talking about how there's been times when he's had so much, um, been blessed by God. He's had to do really difficult things. And there's other times where um, he had less than he needed and he's um, running on fumes and he's being persecuted. And in that context, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So he's not just saying I can win the battle. I can win the fight. He's saying um, I can even endure being defeated and oppressed. And so in some ways, yeah, it's a great verse for an athlete to use and say, I can do this because Christ is strengthening me. Um, as long as they recognize, right, it also means if you lose that championship game, you can, you can bear that, you can endure it because Christ is going to give you strength. And the reality is that Christians throughout the centuries have gone to their deaths, martyr, martyr deaths, um, claiming this verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so what happens sometimes when we trivialize these Bible verses, it's not, I'm not trying to attack anybody at all, my goodness. Um, it's all fine and we're all on our journey, right? But digging deeper into these kinds of things helps us pay attention to the context, helps us pay attention to what the verse means, gives us more breadth in how we can apply these verses to our lives. And man, that is such a good and important thing. And so the invitation with this course is we're going to dive deeper. And what we're trying to do, Creekside Church, we're trying to help people dive deeper 
into um, some discipleship essentials, some tools so that we can deepen our discipleship, who we are, what we're trying to do. And as we do that, right, it's going to look like different things at different times. But as we do that, we, we, we are saying this, our, our mission statement is that we are finding life, we are glorifying God through finding life in Jesus together and inviting others to do the same. So all of it is to God's glory, obviously. And the way we do it, we're trying to find that life in Jesus. We decide, a pursuit that we have together, side by side, and we invite people into that. And so for us as disciple makers, it doesn't matter if you're going to go into full-time ministry or not. It doesn't matter if you're trying to get a theology degree or not. But we are trying to lean into, man, there's so much life to be found in the Word of God. And we can dig into that. We can search into that. And, um, and as we do that, we're going to find that life in Jesus. We'll do it together. It's our, our joint passion. And we'll just keep inviting people into that, helping people to see it, helping people to experience it. So we want to be careful as we read the Bible. Um, we want to pay, pay close attention to what it's saying, how it's saying it. Because in addition to these silly examples, man, as we walk through this, as we're trying to kind of help people find that life in Jesus, um, it, it's not just a matter of kind of we need to get it right and not get it wrong, right? There's all, also a side of it. We want to be careful not to be putting words into the mouths of God. So when God is speaking, we want to be, pay attention to what he says. We don't want to point to something different, something God didn't say, and say, God said that. That's a huge offense throughout scripture. Um, you think of false prophets and things like that. We can easily unwittingly do that, uh, put words in God's mouth, say, say that God said something that he didn't if we're misusing it. And so the, the call and the invitation is to just see what God really says and to live and find all the life that's available in those words. Um, I want to I turn real quick to John 15, or sorry, John chapter 5, and I'm going to turn my like physical Bible here for a bunch of these, and um, I can read them to you if you want to um, look stuff up too, or if you're around driving or whatever, don't worry, I will read it to you here. But John 5, Jesus is, is speaking here, and in this context, he's, he's talking, and um, he says he says basically this. He's talking to um, these people that are challenging him, you know, and and to them, you know, they're they're people that Jewish people, Jewish religious leaders that are very serious about um, scripture and about the Old Testament and all these kinds of things. And um, he says this in in verse thirty nine of John chapter five. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, this is in a bigger context, and it's something you should look up and think through and whatever later, but what I think is a great reminder as we get started here is he's, he's talking to a group of people that have devoted their lives to digging into the scripture. And he's saying, you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them. And he's basically saying, you're right. The scriptures are full of life, but how, how are they? He says, the scriptures bear witness to me. And he says, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And I think he's setting us up to say we could spend our entire lives digging more into scripture and yet miss the actual point of it. I think that's exactly what the religious leaders at the time Jesus was there were doing, devoting their life to the word of God, digging deeper in, studying, learning, growing, um, teaching, and yet they miss the very point of the whole thing. And so for us, a call at the very beginning is to say, if we're going to dig into the Bible, it cannot be about let's get it right every time. It cannot be about... Um, the words themselves, right? It's all about there's life in those pages. And how is that life found? It's found by seeing Jesus in the pages of scripture and having that relationship and that connection to him. So my prayer for us the entire time is going to be that as we walk through all of this, we are seeing Jesus more clearly. The words that we're studying, the, the, the academic pursuit we put into kind of understanding this better 
all leads us to a better and deeper connection with who Jesus is and what that means for our lives. So what we're going to go through this morning um, is we're going to talk about the nature of Scripture. Now, long-term where we're headed, we're going to we're going to zoom out after the, the first couple of um, points I want to make here is about the nature of Scripture. But after that, we're going to dive into um, a plan for like a method for studying the Bible. That method looks like um, an acronym. The acronym is POIMA, P-O-I-M-A, POIMA. Now, I stole this from Douglas Main, amazing man I used to teach with, and um, he, he worked up this based on some other things. But I love the plan. It's very simple. Um, POIMA is not the best acronym in the world, but the plan works great. So here's what it stands for. P is for preparation. O is for observation. I is for interpretation. M is for meditation. And A is for application. So POIMA is preparation, observation, interpretation, uh, meditation, and application. And I'm not trying to give you a, like, rigorous formula that you have to follow slavishly for the rest of your life. I, I find myself shaped by the structure of this, and I don't necessarily sit down and go five points, one, two, three, four, five, let's walk through it like that. But I do find myself instinctively being shaped by the structure of this pursuit, and that absolutely helps me um, in my study. And so I want to invite you into that too. Let's dig in and pay more attention to the structure of it for a while, um, kind of being artificially overstructured in a sense for a while to kind of train our thoughts and our sensibilities. And then when we step into a life of reading, studying, teaching, um, growing, and finding life in the Bible, we'll find ourselves kind of shaped by that a little bit. So that's where we're headed, that poema plan. But first, um, two things I want to say. I want to talk about the dual nature of Scripture, and that's what we'll do for the rest of this session, the dual nature of Scripture. Um, in the same way that Jesus has is said to have a dual nature, so he's both divine and he's human. Um, that's like the mystery of the incarnation that the church has been wrestling with for 2,000 years, that Jesus is both divine and human, and somehow both of those things are true. Um, in, in a similar way, the Bible has these two natures, and, and it's the exact same. The, the Bible is a human book, and it's also a divine book. Now, maybe that sounds a little scary, especially when I say it's a human book, um, but don't worry. Um, set, your, set your fears aside. We're just going to dive into this. We're going to think about it. We're going to start by talking about the Bible as a divine book. Okay, this is very important. So I'm going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As I said, you can turn with me or you can, you can wait till I arrive and I'll read it for you here. 2 Timothy chapter 3 great words on the nature of scripture. So here's what he says in verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how's that for a a statement on the nature of scripture? Now, something important to note here is when it says, when it talks about scripture or the word of God in the Bible, um, we have to always ask, what is it talking about? And so there's a whole lot of issues surrounding that. How did the uh, 66 books in our Bible come together and all those types of things? I'm not going to get into that now, but it's a really important question um, to have and to talk about, and we can wrestle with that later. Um, but the idea is, okay, so he's talking about scripture. It's, it's, these, it's these sacred words that come from God. And we talk about the word of God. Definitely the word, the concept of the word of God means more than just the Bible itself um, because we're, you know, God was speaking throughout the Bible. Um, Old Testament, God's speaking he, through his prophets. They say, hear the word of the Lord. And so when we see the word of God or the word of the Lord, um, we are talking about words that come out of God's mouth. Now, I believe, and, and, and my premise and my assumption as we walk through here is that 
the Bible is the words of God, right? So God spoke other things that weren't written down, but these are the things that are written down that God supernaturally preserved and gave to his people so that it would shape us. Now, and as I said, we'll, we'll talk later about all the different elements of how the Bible came to be, why we can trust it, those kinds of things. Um, but as we kind of roll through here, right, it's, it's helpful to kind of see, okay, this is what he's saying about these sacred writings, these scriptures that come out of the mouth of God. And what does he say? It's breathed out by God. So it's just, it's like literally, it's like his breath. It's just comes straight from who he is. And because of that, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And he gives a purpose statement so that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So what we're saying here is the Bible is a divine book, right? Because these are God's words. Scripture, these sacred writings are God's words spoken to us. And so there's this divine sense about the book. All right. And so one statement I want to make is that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And I think that's true when God spoke it the first time, right? When he spoke to Paul to write these words, um, when he moved Matthew to record his gospel, all these kinds of things, God was speaking in that. So when scripture speaks, God speaks. And I believe that God is still in that process and these words still belong to the Lord. And so when we read the Bible now, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So I want to take a few, I want to take a few assumptions with that, a few uh, implications of it, okay? The first is this, that therefore, because when the Bible speaks, God speaks, the Bible is authoritative, okay? It's authoritative. It means it carries the authority of God himself. If these are actually God's words, right? then the words that God speaks carry all the authority that God himself does, okay? And so that means that our, our study of the Bible, we can never just be simply entirely detached. We can never even be entirely objective, right? Because the Bible requires something of us. When we read the Bible, we are standing under the authority of God as he speaks and we listen, okay? The second implication I want to draw here is that because when the Bible speaks, God speaks, the Bible is infallible, Okay, infallible, what that means is basically it, it's, it's unfailing. It's like, it's like full of this power and it cannot fail to do what God sent it out to do. Okay, so um, what we just saw, it incl- that includes things like convicting, transforming um, us, um, reproving us, teaching us, right? Um, it can even mean, you know, making us alive. I want to read to you um, Isaiah 55. And my goodness, this is such a powerful verse and a powerful statement as God is speaking his word to his people in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, um, great section in there, verses eight and nine about how God's ways are higher than our ways. But look at verses 10 and 11 here in Isaiah 55. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Man, those are strong, strong words, right? So you think of the rain and God's saying, when I say the rain, send the rain, it does what I mean for it to do. Okay, so it takes, it goes into the roots of, these, of the grass and makes it turn green again, right? It, it waters the plants, it gives life to the earth. And God's saying in the same way, the words that come out of my mouth are going to be just like that. Won't return empty, but when I send my words out, they accomplish what they were meant to do. And so when we say that God's word is infallible, we're just saying God is, God is all powerful, right? 
And so when he speaks words, he is capable of ensuring those words do what he intends for them to do, okay? So God gets what he intends, and that's true whether he speaks the words or whether his written words, and that's so important for us to keep in mind. Now, what third, third implication, last implication of the idea that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. I want to say this. Also, that means, I believe, that the Bible is inerrant. And the concept of inerrancy has come under fire and is a little less popular than it used to be, but it means this. Infallible means it doesn't fail to accomplish what God sent it out to do. Inerrant means there's no errors in it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a book that is free of errors, right? So if, it's, if the Bible is God's words, if these are God's words recorded for us, right, then we can be sure it doesn't contain errors because God doesn't make mistakes, right? He's capable of communicating to his people without making mistakes. Now, we have to be careful in saying that, um, and, and always any, any careful Christian that will talk about inerrancy will say, we're not talking about the later manuscripts, or we're talking about the original thing that was written down. God wrote it down. There's no mistakes in that. It's exactly as God intended for it to be. Um, that is a little unsettling to kind of make that distinction, and so we start to think, um, can I trust my Bible? Is it reliable? You know, that kind of a thing. Um, again, like I said, um, towards the end of this course, we will address all of that as well and I'll kind of walk you through and help you kind of get some confidence in how the Bible came to be, why you can trust it, count on it, um, those kinds of things. But the idea is, okay, God wrote um, you know, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible through Moses. And, um, and so when God had Moses record those, God led him into a process of, man, that, there's no errors, there's no, there's no untruth in that, right? But then over the years, right, these things get copied a whole bunch and that kind of a thing. And so um, so we're not necessarily, we have copies, um, old copies of Old and New Testament that, you know, there's some details that are off here and there. Maybe there's a number between Chronicles and Kings um, that's a little bit off. Or, um, you know, sometimes it'll say like the Lord Jesus versus the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're comparing two manuscripts of the book of Ephesians or something, for example. And so we're saying, it's, it's not saying there's no errors in copies that have been made of these books, right? But we're saying in the original. And here's the beautiful thing. We have so, so, so many copies of these original works that we can get down to um, a high, high, high percentage of clarity and certainty about what did those original manuscripts actually say based on the copies, the translations, all those kinds of things. So um, it's like it's like way more than 99% um, confident of this is exactly what those original manuscripts said. And even the places that we know that, yeah, there's a little discrepancy between a few different um, translations or um, copies. We know exactly where those are. In your English Bible, you'll find footnotes that show, you know, some manuscripts say Lord Jesus Christ versus Lord Jesus. And in every single case, it does not affect the meaning of the passage. And so, um, we can just stand with so much confidence that our Bible is given to us without Aaron. And be, why is that? It's because it's a divine book, right? These are God's words and God wanted us to have them. And so, God is capable of speaking to us in a way that he gets his words directly to us. He, he doesn't have to write things down. He can speak directly into our hearts, but God has chosen to speak these words into historical context, have people record them, and lead his people to preserve these words, pass them down to us. Okay, now, a little more, getting a little more philosophical perhaps, but this is going to get into some principles that help us as we interpret the Bible. And so, we will revisit everything I say next again as we get into the interpretation phase, um, but this is going to help us kind of set a framework and help us to start thinking about, okay, because the Bible is a divine book and it's God speaking to us through his word, because of that, we're going to draw some principles. So, here's the thing. Because it's a divine book, the message of the Bible is clear, unified, and non-contradictory. All right? The message of the Bible is clear, unified, 
and non-contradictory. Now, as soon as I say that, you're going to be thinking, okay, well, if it's so clear, why do we disagree on, um, I, I don't know, all kinds of different things in the church, predestination versus free will, and um, and just, my goodness, speaking in tongues or not, or whatever. There's just a long list of things that we disagree about. So it's not saying the Bible is perfectly clear on every issue or that, I guess I guess maybe I want to say the Bible is clear. God, uh, God is able to speak clearly. Um, we, as interpreters in our modern setting, um, are not always clear on it. And so well, there's disagreements that we have, but these don't negate the fact that God is able to speak clearly, that the message of the Bible is unified, and that we don't find contradictions throughout the Bible. Okay, so what are some principles of interpretation that we can pull from that? Again, I said we'll come back to this, but let me just kind of give you a little bit of a rundown of the kinds of implications we'll draw from that. First is we always want to prefer the clear and sensible reading of a passage. Okay, so a silly example I like to use, um, Colossians 1.6 talks about, the word of God has spread forth into the whole world, you know? And so you can wrestle with that. Okay, what does that mean? What does he mean by the whole world? Does it mean the gospel has spread around to like Antarctica and South America, you know? Um, Or might he mean the whole world, like the way that we use the term the whole world, like everybody that I know of, right? The known world even maybe at that time, which was much smaller than the entire globe. And so we we can pull a weird interpretation and say, here is proof that the gospel has gone to Antarctica and did, you know, uh, 60 years after um, Jesus uh, Jesus lived on earth. You could make that point. You could argue that from there. But there's a clearer, more sensible explanation for that phrase, and we want to prefer the clearer, more sensible one in general, okay? So there you go. That's the kind of principle we draw from the idea that the Bible is clear, unified, non-contradictory. All right, a second one. Um, we always want to let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? Because we believe it's going to be a unified message, a clear, unified, non-contradictory message, we want to interpret as much as we can Scripture with Scripture. Um, sometimes this is called the analogy of the faith, where we're, we're comparing Scripture to Scripture, okay? So, so think of it like this. We, you read um, Romans 4, 4 and 5, like he's talking about... Um, He's talking about like how um, Abraham, you know, is not saved by works. It's all through faith. And and so um, you might get the idea, like Paul dislikes good works, right? Or at least finds good works unimportant, right? But then you read Titus 3, you read Ephesians 2.10, right? That things like where God's workmanship created uh, in him uh, to do these good works, right? And so we find other points. You read James, right? And you find that... <sighs> Comparing scripture to scripture, it's not as easy as saying, oh, good works are bad, right? And incompatible with faith. No, we read it, we compare it, we try to get a bigger sense and say, okay, yeah, I can understand what Paul meant in this context, but he balances it in some of these other contexts. And then James comes in and balances him further. And then we we get closer to the meaning of the whole thing, okay? Um and so we just we just kind of you know dig through and we look and we read. Sometimes it's it's like a confusing passage, like something we don't really know what it means. Um, and uh, we dig in, dig in, dig in. So so here's a here's a third kind of example on that. We we use clearer passages to help clarify more difficult passages. Okay, same thing comparing scripture to scripture, but you want to use a clearer passage to explain a more difficult one. So for example, John seven thirty seven to thirty nine, Jesus is talking about how. Um, you know, the one who's in him, rivers of living water will come out of his belly. All right. We read that and we're probably thinking like, what in the world, right? Um, is he talking about a, a gushing geyser coming out of our belly buttons? Like, is that the idea that he's getting at? Right? Well, of course not. Right. Um, and so we ask, okay, what, uh, what, what would that, what that look like? Are there other places in scripture where we get the idea of a river 
uh, flowing out of a person, a river of living water, what would that look like? And we might think of something like Ephesians 5, um, and he talks about how don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And, and when we do that, we're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so we kind of get this idea of the Spirit of God comes into us, and then these things begin flowing out of us in a sense, right? Or um, take Galatians 5, 22 and 23 with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Like these things flow out of the person. These are the fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is doing it. So when we go jump back to John 7, we might... You know, if we did this backwards, right, you could look at uh, Ephesians 5 or Galatians 5 and say, okay, when it's talking about these fruit of the Spirit, these things coming out of your life, that's a way of referring to the river of living water coming out of you, meaning this is the example of the, the water coming out of your belly button, right? This is such a dumb example, but you get the point that I'm saying. We want to use the clearer passages to help interpret the more difficult one, and it seems like a safe bet to say, okay, streams of living water coming out of the person this must be what that looks like, the, the fruit of the Spirit coming out of our lives. Now, I'm not even trying to pitch that interpretation to you right now. All I'm saying is um, you can make a great case for, for it flowing that way and being used that way. All right, another thing here. Because uh, there is uh, a unified, uh, clear, and non-contradictory message in Scripture, we want to always keep our eye on the progress of Revelation, Okay. Progress of Revelation, which just means pay attention to the order in which these things are spoken, okay? So, Matthew 10, um, 5 and 6, Jesus warns, sends out his, his people and says, don't, don't, like to the disciples, don't go to the cities of the Gentiles, only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, so there, Jesus is saying, only Israel, not the Gentiles, right, as he sends his people out. Well, then in Matthew 28, um, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? So, this is the kind of thing... You go on the atheist blog or something like that, and they're going to be like, hey, there's contradictions in the Bible, right? Do, are we supposed to go to the Gentiles or not, right? Um, and they'll put these two verses against each other. Well, that's such a lazy, to me, silly, uninformed example of a contradiction because all you have to do is just pay attention to the progress of Revelation, to pay attention to the order in which it's said. Matthew 10, Jesus was having a ministry to Israel, and he's sending his people out. He's saying, hey, it's not time. Let's not go abroad. Focus on Israel. And then later, and when Jesus rises from the dead... He sends them out uh, to all the nations. And so there's no contradiction there, but we ha do have to use our brains a little bit, right? And think through um, the big picture of, of um, how it all fits together and things like that. Um, and that's true of, you know, new covenant and old covenant and some things that we'll talk about as we get into talking about some of the Bible genres. Okay. Last point that I want to make in this session, and it's very important. So we've said... Um, that when, you know, because the Bible is a divine book, when the Bible speaks, God speaks, right? We've said that then the message of the Bible is clear, unified, non-contradictory, okay? And we're going to watch for that as we try to interpret and read. This is a really important point that often gets overlooked. Because the Bible is a divine book, understanding scripture requires divine illumination, all right? Now, that, that's an old term, but it simply means this. We need the light of God, um, to shine on our hearts and our minds as we read the Word of God. Okay, this is these are powerful words. They're infallible, right? They accomplish what God sets them out to do, but it requires that as we read, we are submitting ourselves to His will. Uh, we're stepping back and we're we're taking in who He is, what He's calling us to, what He wants of us, and helping Him, asking Him to make it make sense. Now, I want to read a, a passage that I think just says this way more powerfully than I ever could, and that's in First Corinthians uh, chapter two. Verses 9 to 14. So 
Um, I'm turning here now, 1 Corinthians 2, and this has huge implications for the way that we approach reading the Bible. So I'm going to go 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 14. Paul says this, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here's this reminder, that as we read, there is this spiritual understanding that is required, right? Nobody understands the mind of God except the Spirit of God, but here's the miracle of living in this New Testament times and the church age that we live in now is simply this. The Spirit of God comes and lives within us. And the, amer- the amazing miracle of that then is that, okay, think of, think of trying to um, interpret the Constitution of the United States. Uh, beautiful document, pa- profound document, world-changing document. Uh, and yet there's a whole group of people, the courts and everything, that are their job is to interpret uh, the Constitution. There's a lot of problems that come with that. Um, and what the biggest problem with it is the Constitution is a dead document. It's a dead text. Now, I don't say that to demean it, right? It's still a very important um, thing, but it's a, it's a dead text. It's, it's words on a page, and we're trying to um, govern ourselves as a society in America by the words on this page. But here's what's different with the Bible. The Bible was written by God, right? God worked through these human authors to write these words. The Spirit of God empowered them. So the God's Spirit spoke these words, took these human authors, moved them in such a way that they wrote these things down. Okay, this is beautiful and powerful, right? But now here's the crazy part. When we go back, we're no longer just reading dead words written on a page, written thousands of years ago by someone empowered by the Spirit. We have that same Spirit who's still alive, right? working in our hearts, working in our minds. And so as we read the Bible, we actually, it's like a sit down with the author and the author himself is there with us interpreting these words to our minds, helping us to see what's really there, helping to kind of, um, as, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians before, before, remove the veil and see the light of the, of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That That's what happens when we read scripture uh, through, uh, with the help, with the aid, with the illuminating aid of the Holy Spirit. So we're not left with a dead text, okay? We, we don't run into the problems that we would run into trying to interpret the founding fathers, right? Um, we can ask the Spirit who inspired the text to guide us in understanding what it means. And that is such a beautiful thing. So, so look, as we, as we uh, dive more into this, we'll, we'll go into several more sessions where we just kind of dig into it. Another session where we go into um, the other nature of Scripture, not the divine nature, but now the human nature and what that means, all the implications of that for the way we study the Bible. And then as we walk through our poema plan of preparation, observation, interpretation, meditation, application, um, you can even hear in that the, the P and the M, the preparation, the meditation, there's points in our process where we're going to pause and try to prepare our hearts and say, okay, I am approaching a divine book. This is given to us by God. It's vital. It's important. It's life-changing. And I need 
the Spirit of God to illuminate me, to make me alive, to help me to see what's truly there. So my prayer for us as we walk through all this is that we'll be more and more alert and alive to what's really in the Bible, what it's really saying, um, hearing God's voice continue to speak to us through this word, and that as we do that, we'll be shaped and transformed and and we'll be better disciple makers, um, gaining these tools um, so that we can find life in Scripture, find life in Jesus through the Scripture, and um, and then just invite other people to, to do that with us, help them on their journey of doing the same thing.